about the story in verse 35, we read, As he, Jesus, drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. At this point in Luke's gospel, Jesus has been spending much of his time in a pretty rural area known as Galilee. If you're, if you're from a place where when someone asks you where you're from, you give them the name of the county rather than the city or the town, that's Galilee. Jesus has been hanging out in Galilee, and he's now on his way to the city of Jerusalem where he will be mocked and flogged and crucified. It's during a time of the year where the roads are jam-packed with travelers. It's a season of Passover. It's a time of celebration for the Jewish people. The streets are congested with people traveling to the city of Jerusalem in mass at this point in the story. Picture most interstates on a holiday weekend or the city of Atlanta all the time. That's what we're talking about here. Jericho, essentially, it's a rest stop on the journey. It's, it's one of those exits that has a Chick-fil-A, you might say. It's a great place to post up with a will work for food sign on the off-ramp, which helps to make sense of why there's a blind man on the roadside begging. Here you have this blind beggar, this man who, due to his blindness, he's likely without a job. He's impoverished, maybe even homeless, incapable of doing anything to better his situation. Absolutely destitute and in need of divine intervention, which is pretty convenient because God in the flesh happens to show up and get off the interstate at his very exit. The blind man hears a crowd approaching and he asks, what's going on? And some people with an earshot tell him that Jesus of Nazareth is on the scene and he immediately proceeds to make an absolute fool of himself. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. If you and I had been there, we probably would have been super embarrassed for this guy. Ignoring his antics, passing right by Jesus on our way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, oblivious to the fact that the true Passover lamb is right there in front of our very own eyes, which is a lesson for the box-checking religious types, I would say. You have this massive crowd of people with physical eyesight, yet a failure to see in this moment. And you have this guy with absolutely no eyesight whatsoever, yet seeing Jesus. And he responds the way anybody who's seen Jesus for who he truly is responds. He makes a complete fool out of himself, and he just doesn't care. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The people in the crowd in front of him tell him to pipe down, to which he promptly responds by persisting to make a fool of himself a second time. Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, a declaration of the messianic kingship of Jesus. God's people had been waiting for a long time for this king to show up on the scene. In the midst of Roman oppression and rule, the question was, is he ever going to come? Is he ever going to show up? Where is he? And a disheveled blind guy on the side of the road says, he's right there. King Jesus, son of David. It's really quite astonishing. The one man in the crowd who's seeing everything rightly, and he's physically blind. Story goes on in verse 40. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? you imagine that? Jesus asking you that question. What do you want me to do for you? What would you say? How would you answer that question? We're told that the blind man said, Lord, help me recover my eyesight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Just like that. After years, 
and years of seeing nothing but darkness, Jesus gives a blind man sight. And amazingly, the first thing he sees is what? The face of Jesus Christ. It's an incredible moment to go from seeing nothing to seeing the most valuable being in all of the universe. This miracle of bringing light into the darkness, it's really nothing new for Jesus at all. He's been doing this kind of thing since the dawn of time. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15, very famous passage, says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. In other words, Jesus was part of all of that let there be light stuff in the beginning. He looked out on the darkness that was over the face of the deep, Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, and he authoritatively spoke light into that darkened void. He said, let there be light, and just like the opening of the blind man's eyes, light basically said, you got it, what else can I do in response to the mighty voice of God? I will now illuminate the world. That's Genesis chapter 1 verse 3. In the beginning, illumination. The God of the Bible is the God of illumination, bringing light where there was once only darkness by way of his authoritative word. And this motif of of light and darkness, sight and blindness, it actually finds itself not only in the story of creation, but also in the story of the fall of man. That Satan's original lie in Genesis chapter 3 was actually a promise of illumination. Genesis chapter 3 begins with these words. He... The serpent Satan said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, here it is, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That the devil's promise to Eve was essentially that she would see. That where there was once blindness, there would be sight, the opening of the eyes. Yet as the scriptures make plain to us, as you continue to read on, the exact opposite happened. Where there was once illumination, now darkness. Where there was once sight, now blindness. The scriptures consistently depict sinful humanity in this state of darkness. And it's a darkness that actually affects numerous aspects of human existence. I'll I'll give you two because they seem to be the two to which the Apostle Paul gives the most attention. Namely, the mind and the heart. The mind, according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17, Paul says... Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Paul says elsewhere, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has, here it is, blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That according to the Apostle Paul, man's understanding has been darkened by sin. The mind blinded from seeing the light of the gospel, which affects man's ability to walk in wisdom. 
Which is why Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That apart from the Spirit of God, it's impossible for a person to spiritually discern wisdom. The mind, Paul says, has been darkened. It's been blinded by sin. But not only the mind, also the heart. Another famous passage, Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, Paul says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And here it is. And their foolish hearts were darkened. The word heart in the Bible comes from the Greek word cardia. It's where we get the word cardiology. It means the center of one's being. It's what's deep in the core of man. It's similar to the language of earth's core being referred to as the heart of the earth. It's what's below the dirt, what's below the surface. The heart is absolutely our affections, but it's much more than that. It's also our thoughts. It's our will. It's the intentions that drive our thoughts and our affections and our will. It's everything under the surface that most people don't see and God absolutely sees. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, For they shall see God, which is essentially Jesus saying, blessed are you if you're pure to the core of your being. And everyone in the room said, we're done for, right? None of us fits that bill. The Bible is crystal clear. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jesus says elsewhere in Matthew's gospel account, Matthew chapter 15 verse 19, he says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. That where the devil promised our first parents illumination, the human condition is now one of darkness. Which is not a message that many people are too keen on. There's a reason that Jesus was crucified. He he came into the world and who did he declare himself to be? The light of the world, right? In the same way that the flipping on of a light switch in the midst of a darkened moment can be painful and harsh, the light of God in the midst of darkness and sin can be painful and harsh and exposing. Jesus was and is the light switch that causes people to hide their eyes. When he entered into human history, people began to see their evil thoughts, their evil affections, and their evil deeds exposed, and they didn't like it. And that goes for both the religious and the irreligious. John chapter 3, verse 19. This is three verses just past the famous John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. John 3, 19 says, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That the irreligious wanted to live life by their own rules, establishing their own definitions of light and darkness. Their own judicial autonomy acting as the trump card in matters of what's right and what's wrong in the world. Just like our first parents in the garden. A life of self-determination. 
The religious wanted to believe that they could brighten up their own darkness, that they could do enough good to cause God to look upon them favorably. And that worked so long as they could compare themselves to all the darkened hearts and minds that surrounded them. But all of a sudden, when Jesus came along, in his perfection, in his sinlessness, in his brightness, to use the language of illumination, they hated him because he crushed their standard of goodness, revealing their inability to earn God's love. The light entered the darkness. We talked about this on Good Friday. And the darkness crucified the light. Darkness hates the light and must do away with it at all costs. That where the devil promised our parents illumination, the human condition is now one of darkness. Where where the devil promised our first parents sight, the human condition is now one of blindness. Coming back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That like the beggar on the road to Jericho, sinful man is absolutely destitute and in need of divine intervention. And the Bible tells us gloriously that we have that divine intervention in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That he took our darkness upon himself at Golgotha, the only darkness that could have crushed us forever, and he conquered our darkness in triumphant resurrection. And because of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, we can now know the miracle of illumination. You might say at this point, well, what does illumination really have to do with Jesus dying on a Roman splintered wooden cross 2,000 years ago. I mean, after all, this series is entitled Cruciform. It's about what took place 2,000 years ago as Jesus shed his blood and died on our behalf. But isn't illumination something that happens in the here and now as the blinders are removed from our eyes so that we can see? And I would say yes and amen to that. But notice what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. That when that veil is removed... And light is shined into the darkness so that we can see what we see is the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That when the veil is removed, what we see is the beauty of one who would live the sinless life that we could never live. We would see the beauty of another dying in our place, our sinner's death. We would see the beauty of of our Savior rising in triumphant resurrection, conquering Satan's sin and death. That if illumination happens and there is no gospel then all of a sudden we've been given eyes to see our hopeless plight that we can do nothing about. But illumination is a beautiful miracle because of what Christ has accomplished going back to a couple thousand years ago on a Roman splintered wooden cross so that when the veil is removed, we see Jesus and all that he's done for us as supremely beautiful, valuable, to be treasured, to be admired. Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Verses 5 and 6, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, that's an allusion to the creation story. God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That I've said this before in this very same space. If you're a Christian, it's because God, who said in the beginning, let there be light, that God shined in your heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That God said, let there be light. And the scales fell away from your eyes and you saw Jesus for who he really is. That is how anyone is converted. Period. 
that when you became a Christian, whether you realize it or not, you had a Jericho Road experience. You went from blind, disheveled, impoverished outcast, groping in the darkness for something to hope in, to a child of God with eyes to see and savor the glory of Jesus Christ. And Jesus made a way for that miracle of illumination on the cross. And so I would say if you're not a Christian, my prayer is that God would declare in this very moment, if he hasn't yet already, as you sit in your seat, let there be light. And like light in the creation story, the eyes of your heart would respond, you got it. What else can I do in response to the mighty voice of God I shall now see? I've been groping in the dark. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That the gospel is not a message of self-sufficiency. It's a message of spiritual blindness apart from the radiant light of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.9, another famous verse. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Colossians 1.13 says it this way. Paul says, he, Jesus, has delivered us. Excuse me, the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And that rescue from darkness to light has more to do than, than with just our conversion. It has to do with all those aspects of human existence that have been affected by the darkness of sin. Coming back to the mind and the heart. Listen to these beautiful verses Romans chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That where there was once a darkened understanding, a futility of mind, there's now the hope of transformation and renewal. The ability to discern the will of God. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul goes so far as to say that 1 Corinthians 2.16, we have the mind of Christ. That's unreal. That we've been illumined by his spirit. It's a miracle. What about the heart? Very famous Old Testament promise, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. And I will give you a new heart, God says, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That the darkened, foolish heart that Paul talks about in Romans 1, God promises to replace that darkened heart of stone with a new heart. And he does so in Jesus Christ. That we've been given eyes to see, to use Paul's words, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is an unbelievable and yet gloriously true miracle of God. And, and if your mind is not boggled quite yet this morning, let me just say this. You've only experienced a taste of it up to this point in the story. Listen to these words, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, John says, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That there's coming a day when we will see God as he is. Holy smokes. Talk about illumination. right? That, that's that's mind-boggling. can't even explain that verse. You just read it and glory in it. 
Revelation chapter 22 verse 5 says it this way. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. We, we looked at this verse as we closed out our sermon series entitled The Story. If you weren't around for that series, I would implore you to go back and listen to that. I commend that series to you. During that series, during that sermon, I asked the following questions. Have you ever stood in awe of the moon on a bright night? And I think the answer for all of us would be, yes, we have. Have you ever laid under the stars at night and found yourself awestruck by the canopy of bright lights? Have you ever lost a staring contest with the sun because the brightness was too much to bear? The reality of what Revelation 22 verse 5 is saying is this. All of that cosmic stage lighting will look like a keychain flashlight in comparison to the glory of God. That God's splendor will light up the entire city of the New Jerusalem like the 4th of July. Perfect illumination. All because Jesus has made a way for the blind to see and savor him forever. Which leads me to just a couple of the personal implications of this particular facet of the cross. As I've said practically every week, this is not an exhaustive list by any stretch of the imagination. I'll just give you two. Two practical implications. One of them is as basic and elementary as I can get, which is that we have been given eyes to see. We've been called out of darkness. We're children of the light. If you're a Christ follower, the question begs to be answered, how could we not use the sight that we've been given to behold the glory of God? Remember that dead horse that I beat during the Hebrews series for those of you who were around as I talked about my daughter seeing the moon for the very first time and then seeing the moon night after night in the wake of that first sighting as if she'd never seen it before, filled with wonder over and over and over and over again? That if you're a Christian, you've been given eyes to see the beauty of Jesus Christ so that the call of this morning is to use the eyes that you've been given to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. To see the son of David who came to have mercy on you. To see the traces of God's faithfulness all over your life. How easily we lose our sight. The call is to get an eyeful of the grace of God. The mercy of God. The love of God. That's an exercise that if you're a Christian you can actually participate in because you've been given eyes to see. The veil has been removed so that the call is not to waste your God-given vision. Don't waste it. Use what you've been given to fix your gaze on Christ, the superior son of God. We see him most clearly in the pages of scripture, which the Bible itself defines itself as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path to use the language of illumination. God's word is a source of illumination. It helps us to see him more clearly. Secondly, and this goes hand in hand with the first thing I just mentioned that we've been given eyes to see. Number two, seeing and savoring go hand in hand. I can't say it any better than John Piper says in his book, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, which I would commend to you if you've never read that book. Fantastic read. He says this, he says, when you see something as true and beautiful and valuable, you savor it. That is, you treasure it. You cherish and admire and prize it. Spiritual seeing and spiritual savoring, he says, are so closely connected that it would be fair to say, if you don't savor Christ, you haven't seen Christ for who he is. 
If you don't prize him above all things, you haven't apprehended his true worth. In other words, we haven't been given eyes to see so that we might simply see what's there as it pertains to God, but so that we might savor, so that we might treasure the God whom we see with the eyes we've been given by his grace. Let me say it this way. It's one thing to know that honey is sweet because you have eyes to read the label and can see that it contains various sugars. It is an altogether different thing to know that honey is sweet because you've tasted of its sweetness. So it is with Christ. We've been given eyes to see, but not so that seeing might be an end in and of itself, but so that our seeing might lead to our savoring Christ, our treasuring Christ, our, uh, our cherishing Christ, our prizing him. How many, how many different synonyms can I come up with to make sense of it all? In previous weeks, I made mention that each of these facets of the cross will hit each and every one of us differently. I mentioned that if this particular facet of the cross isn't the one that speaks to your heart most readily, come back next week or the next week. I've said that over and over again throughout this series. And I've also said that there's certainly communal and missional value for each and every one of us as we look at each and every one of these facets of the cross. And I would go so far as to argue that this particular facet of the cross known as illumination might have the most communal value of all. That we're all fighting to see and savor Jesus Christ, are we not? Again, coming back to the Hebrew series, we're all fighting against spiritual drift. We're all fighting, to use the author of Hebrews' words, to not neglect so great a salvation as has been given to us. We're all warring for that. We're all in a battle to see and treasure Jesus as supremely valuable. So I would argue that we all have a role to play in putting this facet of the cross to work communally, helping each other to see and savor the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ can't help but come back to that quote that if you've been around for any significant amount of time with our church, you've probably heard it before. C.S. Lewis, The Weight of Glory, he says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased, Lewis says. That we're hardwired for infinite joy, and it's ours for the taking in Jesus Christ. But we're prone to wander toward the slums, toward the mud holes of the world, you might say. We need to be reminded, and others need us to remind them that infinite joy is found in Jesus Christ. As we fix our, our eyes, the eyes we've been given to see, on the supremely valuable Son of God. Lastly, like I'm barely scratching the surface of this. What about the missional aspect of this facet of the cross known as illumination? How can we use this beautiful facet of the cross to evangelize? What are the evangelistic implications of this particular doctrine? Well, for one, and this is humbling, we have to acknowledge that we can't persuade people into the family of God by natural means. That regardless of the cleverness of our argument, evangelism requires the illuminating work of God's spirit. And thus... One of the greatest aspects of evangelism that we can possibly engage in is prayer. That we need the Spirit of God to bring illumination to the natural mind darkened by sin, corrupted by sin. So that every conversion that's ever happened or ever will happen is a miracle. 
It really is. It's the miracle of God lifting the veil, covering the minds and hearts of unbelievers so that they see the beauty of Jesus living the sinless life that they could never live. They don't see that as folly anymore. So that they see the beauty of Jesus dying the sinner's death that they deserve to die. They don't see his bloodshed as folly anymore. So that they see the beauty of the offer of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, as beautiful, not as folly anymore. But that doesn't mean that we don't have a part to play alongside prayer either. That we get to declare to those still walking in darkness that Jesus truly is the light of the world. That he exposes the inadequacy of the self-created moralistic light of the religious lost. And he exposes the darkness and corruption of the irreligious lost. We get to declare that Jesus is the only hope for overcoming the darkened, blind condition of sinful man. But we get to do even more than that. Similar to last week, we not only get to declare it, but we get to display it. Jesus is the light of the world, the Bible says, but somehow... So are we, Jesus says. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, Jesus' words, red letters in most of our Bibles. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You could say it this way. If your reality has collided with Jesus Christ, the true light of the world, that collision will leave you with a glow. In the same way that the moon's been positioned to perfectly reflect the sun's light, so you and I have been positioned to reflect the light of Jesus Christ. For the blind beggar, it was at a rest stop on the road to Jericho. Listen to the final words of that story coming back to Luke 18, verse 43. The story ends with these words. And immediately... He, the blind man, recovered his sight and followed him, followed Jesus, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. That's what it means to be the light of the world. Your light is derivative. It's not self-created. It comes from Jesus. He is the light of the world without whom we would not shine. And he creates a glow in those who see him for who he truly is. And somehow, God uses our declaration and our display of the light of Christ to perform miracles in the hearts of the lost. So that, if I could really pare down the two things that are critical to our mission as it pertains to this doctrine of illumination, it would be this. The goal is, number one, keep seeing and savoring the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And number two, position yourself in your seeing and savoring as a friend of sinners. It really is that simple. Let me say it again. Number one, the goal is to keep seeing and savoring the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And number two, to position yourself in your seeing and savoring as a friend of sinners. And as we do that, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, will perform the miraculous work of illumination. And we will give him great glory for it. Series isn't over yet. Next week, we come around to the doctrine of victory. We get to talk about Jesus as our victory over Satan, over demons, over death. The week after that, we come back and we talk about the doctrine of adoption, how we've been brought into a family and given a home and a name. And so I invite you to come back and keep exploring as we spin the jewel and to see it in its fullness, in its beauty, in its radiance. 
But for now, we're going to continue to worship the God of illumination. We're going to do that in a number of ways. Um, We're going to do that through singing. So we're going to continue to sing this doctrine together in this place. And I hope that as the words leave your lips, as you see these words having to do with being rescued from darkness and brought into light, rescued from blindness and given sight, that your heart would just leap within you for joy at what God has done and performing a miracle in you because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for you. We'll also worship uh, through prayer. If you want someone to pray for you, there'll be people in the back of the room to pray with you, to pray for you. Particularly, you know, if, if, uh, if you're not a Christian and you just want to cry out to God, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Illumine. Uh, be people to pray for you in that regard. If you are a Christian and you just want prayer for rescue from the darkened slums of the mud holes of the world, be people available to pray for that as well. Or really anything else you want prayer for. And then lastly, we're going to worship through the receiving of communion. We take the bread here representing the broken body of Jesus. We dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. As you prepare to receive of communion, if you're a Christian, that meal is for you. As you prepare to receive of the elements this morning, just invite you to ponder for just a moment, just to stop and think about what Jesus accomplished for you so that when the veil was removed, you had a Savior to see and savor.